0: Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because, unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo from the Restart Project and I'll be your host. I'm joined today by Andy Gregson, founder of the Green Lab, and Halima Kundi, one of Restart's volunteer coordinators in charge of our Rosie the Restarters program. Welcome, guys.
1: Hello. Thank you. Thank
2: right you. Go.
0: Well, in this episode, we'll discuss a bit tongue in cheek, the upcoming apocalypse with people, food, uh, stockpiling food linked to what will happen at the end of March in the UK and the potential to find alternative solutions to that with indoor growing technologies and the world of DIY food making. But first, we're going to have a look at a couple of recent pieces of news that uh, struck us in the last uh, few weeks. First, um, we read on Quartz's uh, blog that shared scooters don't actually last very long. Luckily, this is something that doesn't happen in London yet. But uh, we've all been in cities where people can take a scooter for a quick ride, Pain almost nothing and well it turns out that electric scooters from company Bird operating in Kentucky the United States uh, apparently do not last on average more than 28.8 days and then they either disappear or they break down or they're vandalized or perhaps they're sent to another city we don't know but we were able to learn about this actually because there is an open data infrastructure in Louisville, Kentucky, that allows the researchers to actually look into this and uh, find out interesting things. But all of that said, technology aside, it's quite shocking that a product including quite a bit of tech and lithium batteries are, is lasting that little. What do you make of it?
1: Yeah, well, 28 days is very short. So, um, as a as a consumer when you buy electronic devices and when you buy um, something that's supposed to take you from a to b you'd expect it to last for more than a month right years so. perhaps <laughs> yeah um so yeah that's shocking and yeah yeah i
2: think there's a level of convenience in everyday life at the moment and so you expect things to operate as and when you need it in a given location and i think it's that level of convenience that's driving that need to have a scooter available in a high street with a bunch of tech. And the knock-on effect of somebody actually using it, they don't they think about the consequences of the their choice. So things like the restart initiative, like you said, we, we um I know of, you know, increases the awareness of uh, the, the, the lifespan of electric goods in the city. And in, in the context, I guess, of scooter, there's a cost of the investment, the staff, the people, the infrastructure. It doesn't really stand up as a viable business case if you're developing this yeah absolutely
0: and actually the article went in a little bit more uh, detail in showing that this is just completely unsustainable even if you were just looking at the cost of the device itself which doesn't take in consideration the cost of a license to operate and all kinds of other maintenance costs but these devices uh, tend to cost over $500. And uh, uh, the average revenue from 28.8 days would be about uh, $70 or so, which just doesn't make any economic sense, particularly at scale, you can imagine uh, the big losses. But from our perspective, certainly the amount of waste generated is uh, just gigantic and really worrying. And we haven't seen the case of the scooters, uh, specifically the dockless scooters, but we've seen companies currently pulling out of the London market and elsewhere when it comes to bike sharing. And uh, uh, and we've seen cases of teardowns of these bikes showing the amount of tech that's involved just in the locking and unlocking aspect of the bikes. And so that's very worrying, particularly as new Brands are coming in and piloting electrical bikes with much bigger mm. um, lithium batteries. And so the potential for massive electrical waste for which no one is very certain at this point who's responsible for taking care of that at the end of the life of the product, particularly when companies pull out and run away. Yeah, I, th- I think
2: if, if a log, let's say, let's, let's, if you take a, and some of these are typically funded by US-based investment
0: venture capitalists
2: Or Chinese yeah or they obviously the, the the money that goes into developing these products when they, like you say as they do if they do fold there could be tens of thousands of products in the marketplace that no longer function that could end up in a canal a river a, you know a garden somewhere leaching the chemicals from the batteries um, i think i mean some of the re- some of those reasons are around consumer habits as well um, that coming back to this kind of thing of choice is that there's, there's too much, sometimes too much choice. Yeah. And not um, giving people other options.
1: Yeah, and uh, jumping back on this consumer habit, but also consumer awareness, because um, not all of us, when we see, we see those, those bikes, uh, we think about electronic waste because we don't realize uh, always uh, the amount of electronics that's embedded in those, uh, we just see a bike um, and we don't realize the e-waste that goes in there. We don't realize there's a lithium battery often as a consumer and that's raising awareness about um, how big of an impact it has on the environment. I think it's uh, it's important as well.
0: Yeah, We'll link uh, on our blog post about today's show how you know, if you take apart one of these now abandoned bikes uh, uh, that you can find quite readily in London and it's not legal technically to take ownership of one of these bikes but Nonetheless, uh, if you open the locker, the the lock mechanism, you'll find similar technology to what you find in a uh, mobile phone, like you find four uh, mm. G antenna, modem, uh, Bluetooth, the GPS, and everything else, like PCBs. Edit, I think all so of it.
2: some of that illustrates the cost of the electronic components are falling so dramatically yeah. that the 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 throwaway cost is 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 worth it in some cases where your you're, the startup tends to go for volume as quickly as possible to gain traction, to gain awareness, to gather data. It's all about the data. Yeah, and at the end of the day, the, the $500 or $400 or, or $100 bike, because that'll come in time, uh, It's just a vehicle to gathering consumer, and then where Facebook gathers data, et cetera. So you might be gathering data into the transport and traffic and movements of people.
0: And that leads us nicely to the next piece of news that uh, we found a little bit disturbing earlier this month. And it's about how uh, Google was found kind of hiding, maybe not so willingly, but maybe we have some doubts, a microphone in one of the components of their uh, Google Nest suite of products. And uh, this became public information when they released the software update saying that now the google assistant which does require a microphone was activable on that device and uh, so oops they said we never thought we were keeping it secret but we made a mistake so iot uh, stressful case once again
1: yeah of- that's the missing s in iot which is security <laughs> yes. um and uh exactly you 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 buy um a you buy um, an IoT device that's a thermostat uh, controller and you think um, that you're just sending out data about how uh, your house um, is warm or cold or um, how efficient uh, your warming system is. But in fact, um, your private conversation is sent as well. Um, that's, that's very worrying, yeah. Potentially. Yeah, I
2: think, th- yeah, you know. I think Google not to mention there's a microphone and a Nest device. It's certainly another site. Which by uh, the I,
0: way, it's a device for home security. So it's quite
2: uh, ironic. <laughs> uh, but I also think that sometimes it can be more cost-efficient to include certain features in a product when you ship it, but not necessarily activate them as them when, when you need it. But not to mention that the device wasn't there in the first place. is For me, it's a, it's unacceptable. Uh, but going back to Helene's um, point about data, is that we are tracked and monitored on a daily basis, and having that type of capability in a home device do, does kind of lend some amount uh, of kind of you know insecurity to the, the consumer you know, what what am I being watched tracked, listened to, and how how
0: are people using that data as well absolutely, and you know while we navigate this world of uncertainty uh, around uh whether certain tech is in our best interest or not, there's tech that uh, could actually save us from the environmental catastrophe that we're all leading towards, and particularly in this country where people are starting to talk about stockpiling, heading to supermarkets uh, in the wake of whatever will happen after the 29th of March or potentially even before. And, and it, your work uh, with GreenLab from the beginning uh, really struck us as a way to open our minds and eyes to how we can solve all kinds of problems about resilience and uh, uh, self sufficiency yep. uh, in a completely different world, particularly when it comes to uh, food production in new ways. Could you tell us how you came up with Green Lab in the first place? Well, Green Lab stems from the kind of
2: maker community, which you're obviously part of with the restart. Um, having spent three years establishing Fab Lab London, which is a maker space. I realized that the kind of maker community from my perspective needed a kind of a focus. And applying the kind of maker thinking into a food sector, which is food waste and water. Green Lab was born on its kind of main mission is to provide affordable um, space for early stage businesses in the agriculture and circular economy world. Uh, whether it's a growth space for algae, fish, vertical farming, insects, mycelium, which is mushrooms, kombucha, which is a fermented drink, to give them the space and I guess opportunity to meet lightman individuals, to be able to afford to rent two, three, four square meters of space to grow and farm different products in different ways. So how can we grow, uh, let's say, you know, cotton using less water than is in an industrial sense? How can we farm algae to be a replacement feed for aquaculture? How can we use insects to harvest spent brewery grain to feed trout? or salmon, or how can we teach a nine-year-old kid how to grow um micro-greens using a recycled plastic bottle on his school window. So it's it's a quite, it's quite a broad church, so to speak, um, we've been running for two years, this is our third year of operation, although five years conceptually, um, we, we're over two floors of an old school cafeteria and kitchen in Bermondsey, which is just a small stone throw from here. And we, you know we run monthly open houses. We're looking for early stage businesses to come and join our, I guess, sustainable group of individuals trying to change the world from
0: Central London. But it's been it's been a really interesting journey. Well, know. and um, uh, so you're in Bermondsey as part of the local Three Space building. Um, so Three Space is a charity that. Yep. Uh, Opens up spaces uh, in the heart of London mm. and makes them available for a very affordable um, rent to all kinds of enterprises and often for non-profits, yeah, so, uh, including for free.
2: So we, we share office. Forci- we were, we're in um, a building with uh, four or five, um, no, forty or fifty other early-stage companies from charities, right through to um, early-stage businesses in software and some in hardware. So you know, thanks to Three Space, we exist. Um, and also thanks to I guess to Grove now and the, obviously you donate the property on behalf of the landowner.
0: And and so the circularity and zero waste approaches that are at the heart of Green Lab, how are they implemented? I mean, firstly like it's very exciting that you gave uh strong direction to what often the maker movement as you were saying, doesn't have that focus and so at times Things that are manufactured in fab labs and makerspaces don't have like, a strong environmental yeah. vocation. And so, this is per se uh, already very encouraging. But how do you put uh, zero waste and uh, resilience at the heart of the work?
2: It's, it's a philosophy, it's an ethic, and it's something we try to achieve in that everything we, everything we touch, so for example, the things we buy or the things we recycle, for example, with all the timber for the for the lab all the table not all, all, the, all the tables have been made from recycled timber however the electronics we need to run the systems usually come from either asia or from cambridge which is raspberry pi so we try our best to recycle where possible we try to imbue that or infuse the residents with some kind of core principles about recycling cardboard plastic glass metal food waste etc so we we try i guess to pass across the philosophy and we try to measure in some respects the impact of that on the startups that we, that bring, we bring into the early stage you know, incubator.
0: You are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM and we are talking about the wonderful world of Green Lab with uh, founder Andy Gregson so and then how what does it take to start growing food at home indoors which it seems one of the key activities that are experimented there it doesn't
2: take a lot of effort to be honest you could grow some cress on your windowsill with a bit of damp tissue paper and some seeds um, tomatoes require a bit more effort and a bit more space because they're quite tall or a vine uh, potatoes onions or any other kind of root vegetables require a garden and if you live in a tower block in London a garden is you know a very lucky asset to have access to but there are community gardens I think from a kind of in a i I guess you know, what's the average household it's difficult to define average but if you were to look at it in the context of let's say um, an urban setting be it a flat an apartment a shared house uh, your window sill is probably the best thing to start something quite small basil mint herbs um, rosemary that you could actually add to a meal that you make, so I think I can keep keep it really simple
1: um that 's very interesting for me because um i 'm really bad at growing anything um i don 't have a a green hand and um I just moved in a flat where I have a small um, backyard garden and I was looking into what can I do of that um, and that 's really interesting for me to know that with a few uh, uh pots i can start growing my own herbs so that would make me cook again
2: (laughs) you can i mean your chances are your house is going to be 18 to 24 degrees you got heating you can germinate seeds indoors in a small pot that you can buy from a household hardware store for probably about a fiver Hmm. the seed you can probably get for free from like a seed bank and there are community Hmm. initiatives that give out seeds for free
1: okay that's interesting so you can
2: germinate indoors because it's warm and then if, if you're south facing or you've got access to the sun most of the day, you could do tomatoes against the wall. Right. Uh, Or you could do onions or herbs. Start really simple.
0: You know, you could cut a potato in half and you can grow potatoes from that.
1: All right. Okay.
0: And I'm fascinated by the mixing agricultural DIY and tech together and visiting Green Lab has always been an inspiration, seeing how... Raspberry Pi is another tech uh, kind of jump in and help yeah. regulate super low resource agriculture growing can you tell us a bit more about that and where can people like equip themselves with uh, the kind of tech that can help if we, they want to do some experiments
2: I think you know the, the, the lab we do we, we offer research residences in the lab so that you can you can contact the lab for I guess the first point of call but London Hackspace it's a great port for getting to get together with the Arduino community. People like Mark Bento, who Mark, uh, runs um, the Arduino community. So you can take the Arduinos, which is a small computing device, and there are a bunch of avid you know, community people there who can help you learn how to, how to use the technology.
0: But what do people do with that technology, Arduinos or Raspberry Pis, that has to do with growing food? Um, in, in the context of Green Lab, we use it to track manage and
2: monitor growing systems. Okay. So for example, on my phone I have the pH, the temperature and the uh, lighting conditions of an aquaponic installation in the lab. Aquaponics is where you mix fish waste, which is live fish with leafy greens. So the fish poo in the water, the water is pumped into the uh, the media bed, which is basically small pebbles where the uh, the leafy greens grow and the bacteria break down the fish waste to feed the plants, and you basically just pump the water around in circles. And so the technology is used to measure and track the effectiveness of that growing system. In the same way that vertical farms, where you see like basil and lettuce, are controlled using high-end IOT systems. So it's about increasing productivity, making sure the nutrient doses are optimal, and ensuring that the nutrient uptake in the plant is optimal, so it grows faster because as we reach 2050 and 10 billion people on this planet and our food system start to fail yeah we're in desperate need of either reducing the amount of food we waste which is a third which is disgraceful half the planet is malnutritioned the other half is overfed and there's a real dichotomy and so for me it's trying to find ways to raise awareness build more efficient systems but also provide platforms for early stage businesses, which are half my age or quarter of my age, so I was born in 68, to develop new solutions to old paradigms, which is just growing food or farming fish or cattle. Yeah.
0: Could you give us an example of uh, one of the businesses uh, that are currently housed at Green Um We
2: have uh, two gentlemen who joined us, uh, Jono and Patrick from Square Mile Farms, and they have basically built in the lower lab four by three Four by three meter green box, and it 's essentially it 's a vertical farm, and they will grow probably upwards of um, fifty to sixty thousand heads of lettuce per year in this box and it's it 's controlled it 's a controlled environment fifty to
0: sixty thousand yeah you
2: said. yeah tremendous yes yeah. Um, we just started a new project looking at algae as a potential feed for fish using spent beer grains as well, so we 're starting to look at. Different activities. We had a gentleman who started a kombucha brewing business. I think I tes- tasted that. Yes, one it's, time. it's called Compassion. It's John Katona, and now John's running his own brewing business in Hackney Wick. But he came to the lab. We gave him space. He brewed hundreds of gallons of this stuff. I drank a lot of it. And now John's gone and started his own, you know, business in Hackney Wick, which is tremendous as a kind of you know pipeline for new ideas. So
0: your vision is to. Help uh, new small uh, sustainable startups uh, develop innovative solutions that help reduce some of the dichotomy that w- you were referring to.
2: Yeah, it's it's basically the labs. The labs like um, it's um it's a vehicle to accelerate the development of new concepts in the kind of circular economy, sustainable bus- food businesses. I'd like to replicate the model of the lab and do it in many places. For example, a green lab in London a bit different from a green lab in Nigeria, yeah, or a green lab in Africa, or or not Africa, or say Southeast Asia, or one in on the Arctic, right. But they all share a, a common goal in that how do you optimize a growing system based on a few constraints: access to water, nutrients, and light and temperature, and also what are you going to farm or grow? Is it insects, or is it fish, or is it actually cattle? Yeah. So it's 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 about creating a platform for a more sustainable food system.
0: So you were saying earlier that um, normal household or an average household could start with growing maybe some tomatoes uh, or herbs. What about more fruits and veg? Is there any uh, hope for achieving more indoor with just readily available technologies and not like the super magical green box you were referring to? I think I think if you
2: have the space in your home, which is always key, you know, is it the TV or is it a f- some fish with some greens? You know, there's some decisions to make there. And the other thing is the greens take a long time to grow. There's, there's, that, there's that time, and unless you do microgreens, which maybe takes seven to ten days, but I think in the in the home, LEDs are coming down in price. Um, growing systems, some of them can be quite simple to automate. Um, but again, it comes—it comes down to space. And it, and it, and if it's if you're doing uh, simple things like rockets, or um, um, chard, or leeks, or um, basil, sage—they're relatively quite straightforward to grow. When you're looking at potatoes indoors, you've got a huge mass of soil. Where are you going to put that? You're going to put that in your lounge, your kitchen. So it's the practicalities of where you grow this stuff.
0: There's also an element of the energy consumption involved with indoor uh, farming, and so in terms about in terms of all this tech and the LED lights. Of course, LED is very energy efficient, but so is it very energy intensive from an electric grid perspective. I think it depends on what you're farming. Um, if your
2: LEDs could be powered by renewable energy through PV solar panels, but you need you might need a large solar panel to power your enormous bank of LEDs. Um, if you're farming let's say insects and they're not a non-native insect like black soldier fly, black soldier fly will eat organic matter and you feed the insects to fish as a kind of nutrient replacement, a protein replacement. They require high humidity, high temperature. That's got a big footprint on the energy grid. Um, it, 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 it depends. If you're um, simple things like herbs, you could probably do from a windowsill, so the, the, the footprint's relatively low. Um, larger farms, if you look at the US, things like AeroFarms or Gotham Greens. Gotham Greens is on a rooftop, um, whereas AeroFarms is a $100 million farm uh, using aeroponics. Aeroponics is something uses very limited amount of water and basically sprays the roots, which is ideal for uh, growing food en route to Mars. Because if war- you have $100 million. Because water's heavy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, tell us the truth. Has anyone contacted you in recent <laughs> days asking you, how can you help me um, you know, so prep for CBD. Brexit? No.
2: Oh. Um, we, we've had, I've had some conversations with a number of my colleagues on the whole Brexit issue. Uh, two of them are from the National Farmers Union. So they're f- fully aware of the existing supply chain that provides, you know, the seventy odd or what a sixty million people in this country. Th- they are, I think, overly although optimistic that the the exit will not severely impact our s- food supply, because obviously it's critical to sit to, to civil order. Social, you know, breakdown will occur if you can't have your beans, sausages, bangers, or whatever you, you wish. Um, I think th- there won't be that. Backlog. There may be some delay. I think right. it depends what tariffs are put in place between the other countries. But I think the, the thing—the No Deal—is the thing that we're trying to avoid at all costs because we'll the, the, the impact is
0: quite, I think, significant or could be. Great. Well, thank you for all these insights, and uh, I would encourage everyone listening to the show to head to the Green Love and visit it during an open day. When is the next one?
2: Our next open day is on the—it's on the last Thursday of every month in the evening, right it runs from 7 till 9 and you can find that more at greenlab.org Um it's,
0: it's, it is free great
2: and uh, we share all the projects that have been developed in the space on the evening
0: brilliant and uh, it's also a great location to host uh, events in case you're looking for a venue uh, always one that I would recommend and um, thank you for listening if you n- would like to help fixing anything with a plug or a battery, including headphones, radios, and old audio equipment. Our next Restart Party in London is this Saturday from 12 to 3 p.m. at the Abbey Community Centre, hosted by Restarters Kilburn. But also we have one upcoming Rosie the Restarted event, Alima.
1: Yes, so uh, we are very happy to announce that we are going to host another Rosie Restarting Restart Party. A Rosie Restart Party is a women and non-binary only uh, restart parties where uh, volunteers and um, people come together to repair their electronics. And it's going to be um, this March, the thirtieth of March, at Tree Space, Brixton, um, uh, from one p.m.
0: Brilliant. And you can find out more about these and other upcoming events on our website, therestartproject.org, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Thanks to Optonoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs, and discard electronics. We're here live on Resonance FM every second Tuesday of the month at 5pm. Until next month. Thank you.